North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. Images seem to show North Korea has started dismantling a key facility at a missile engine testing site. We've seen the open press reporting about the missile engine test site. It's entirely consistent with the commitment that Chairman Kim made to President Trump. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. We're joined today by many incredible veterans of the Korean War. As you may know, we're also working to bring back the remains of your brothers in arms. Mr. President, North Korea is playing the same old game with you they played with every other president. You need to make sure that China and North Korea know and believe that you're different. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. CSIS's Victor Cha, Mike Green, and Sumi Terry. In this episode of The Impossible State, we're talking with Victor Cha and Sumi Terry here in the CSIS studio, and we have with us calling in from South Korea, Jonathan Chang, the Seoul bureau chief for the Wall Street Journal. Jonathan, welcome from Seoul, South Korea, where we understand you're having a bit of a heat wave. We are indeed. It's uh, been relentless, and we look forward to a little bit of rain. We hear you guys are getting the rain in Washington, but we could use a little bit here because uh, it, it's just been unbearable. We'll try to send it your way. We're so glad you could join us to give us a view from Seoul. Here in the United States today, um, Secretary Pompeo has been summoned up to the Hill to talk about what Donald Trump said in his meeting with Kim Jong-un and also what Donald Trump said in his meeting with Vladimir Putin. I don't think we thought anything could push North Korea out of the news until we had the Helsinki summit, um, but it did. And and. North Korea has been on the back burner a little bit, but today Pompeo is going to hopefully shed some light on that meeting. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> Victor, what do you think he's going to say? Um, well, I'm sure he's going to say that uh, although it's rainy in Washington, there's no rain on the diplomacy with North Korea, that right. all things are moving ahead. Um, there'll probably be some sort of activity on the return of POW MIA remains. Uh, which uh, the North Koreans promised in the June summit. And then the most recent news has been this um, taking down of the missile test site, the missile launch site at Sohei, which, you know, is again another part of the deliverables that President Trump will claim uh, is a big part of what they have been doing in implementing the June uh, Singapore summit. So, again, while it's rainy and stormy here, I, I think he's going to he's going to paint a very sunny picture of the diplomacy. But I think he's going to be asked because there was an intelligence community assessment that came out that this dismantlement of the liquid propellant engine test stand at Sohe is reversible. Um, this and it does not it does not really cap further production of additional missiles. So while it, this is certainly making progress, uh, I, I don't think we should over-exaggerate that this is some sort of a big deliverable. But it is progress. Yeah, it is a progress um, because at least North Korea is doing something. And Jonathan, what are people in Seoul saying about it? Well, I think people here are definitely urging patience, um, very much in line with uh, with, with the president, uh, Donald Trump's uh, relatively new tune here. Ahead of Singapore, he was talking about how 
he wouldn't really tolerate anything short of complete denuclearization. And afterwards, we've heard him saying, look, this is going to take some time. We don't have a timeline on this. Um, this is a difficult issue. There are a lot of scientific hurdles, a lot of other things that need to happen. And, um, and, and that actually aligns him quite closely with what Moon Jae-in has been saying, which is, look, this is, this is a journey. This is not going to be easy. Um, we're going to have to rebuild trust because we haven't had trust in decades. Um, and so you sort of have everyone singing from the same uh, hymnal right now because uh, Moon and Trump's interests are aligned, at least for now, on this. Um, and you could argue Kim's as well in terms of wanting to keep the mood music nice without having to have any side uh, give up anything too big uh, right now that might disturb the balance. President Trump and President Moon probably have the best relationship that Trump has with any foreign leader, it seems like. Um, What do you hear about that in Seoul? Well, it's really upended the usual political calculus here in the political spectrum. You have folks on the right who are betrayed by uh, these actions. They feel like Trump has basically thrown human rights out the window, thrown CVID, the complete verifiable, irreversible uh, denuclearization, dismantlement um, out the window that he's uh, basically yielding to Kim. And then you have folks on the left who are thrilled. They never thought that Donald Trump would be uh, the guy who would put them this close to a peace declaration to end the Korean War, to um, pulling, uh, you know, the, the joint military exercises with South Korea, um, to even talking about pulling out U.S. troops from the peninsula. So, it is a bit of a topsy-turvy environment right now. And, um, you know, we've had a lot of twists and turns over the past two years. So I wouldn't say that this will necessarily be the status quo that we settle down into. But it has been the status quo for the last few weeks. And it, it feels a little odd. But, um, but, but, but we'll see where things go. Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing when you compare the discussion that Jonathan described in Seoul with what's happening in Washington is that there's so much skepticism, certainly not from the White House, but from pretty much everybody else in the policy community. Right. A great deal of skepticism um, about, you know, what was agreed to in Singapore, um, whether we're actually going to have a real denuclearization process, because what we've seen thus far are... Um, basically little chips that the North Koreans have thrown on the table, returning 50 POWMI remains, right, taking down Sohei, the launch site for the last ballistic missile. And, of course, that is something that Trump welcomes because that site that they're taking down was a site at which the North Koreans fired the three-stage satellite uh, launch vehicle in 2012 that submarined the Obama-era so-called Leap Day deal agreement. So politically, even there, it's just fantastic for Trump. It's symbolic. It's symbolic. It's very symbolic, and it gives him a lot of ammunition to say how great he is compared to previous presidents. But, you know, the problem is all of us have said from the very beginning, if we're really going to have a serious denuclearization process, it has to start with the North Korean commitment to a full and complete verifiable declaration of everything that they have because you cannot have a denuclearization negotiation with the North Koreans over things that they do not acknowledge having, right? This was the problem we had in 2007, the last time we did this. And again, we are at this point where the North Koreans are putting small pieces on the table that Trump can claim as a victory, but we are not starting 
We have not yet started, at least publicly, it doesn't appear that we have actually started a denuclearization negotiation. But of course, North Korea is pushing um, towards some sort of peace declaration and hopefully trying to secure a peace treaty from Washington before they begin the process of denuclearization. This is what was evidently clear with the Singapore Declaration, with just the wording, the, the, the way they worded it. I mean, the peace regime talk came before uh, that third point about working towards denuclearization. Um, and so I, I feel that there's a momentum towards at least making peace declaration that's different from peace treaty. Um, and I, 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 I think, for example, on the Liberation Day, President Moon uh, is going to probably make a speech uh, of something like that, uh, and Kim Jong-un will too. Um, so I think there's a momentum towards try, trying to at least uh, get a peace declaration out of Washington. Jonathan, are you feeling momentum where you stand? Well, I mean, um, just picking up on what Sue was saying, I mean, we do have a bunch of those key calendar dates coming up. On Friday, we have the 65th anniversary of the end of the Korean War. Uh, then on August the 15th, we have the anniversary of Japan's surrender and the liberation of Korea. And then you have September 9th, uh, which is the 70th anniversary of the founding of the DPRK. And, um, you know, each of these dates gives some of these players an opportunity to make some sort of a statement to try and advance their own interests. And so we may see some of that as soon as Friday, um, whether or not we get the first returns of the U.S. war remains, whether we get some sort of a statement from either of the Koreas with regards to peace and the Korean War, um, you may see a move like that take place. And, you know, one thing I thought that was interesting is um, you had uh, the defense ministry here in Seoul talk about pulling back uh soldiers from the DMC, from these frontline positions as a trust-building measure to build on the April 27th Panmunjom Declaration, where the two Koreas agreed that they'd be de-escalating military postures um, in, in places like this. Um, and so even when things appear to be a little bit stuck, um, you can see that Moon is still nudging things ahead. And, and what's interesting, too, is the backdrop of this is that Moon's, uh, you know, nearly gravity-defying approval ratings now finally seem to be sagging a little bit. And, um, you know, it, it, it's interesting to see whether or not people are running out of, pati uh, running out of patience here with this detente, whether Moon's move to try and remove troops from the DMZ might be seen as a way to keep things going because you've had Pyongyang also trying to say, look, we need to see more progress on inter-Korean right now, even though the U.S. is saying we need to see more progress from U.S. denuclearization. There are a lot of dynamics going on here, even though it's out of the headlines. It's, um, it is an interesting uh, jockeying for position behind the scenes. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting. Moon was in somewhere in the in the 80s, right, mid or high 80s, and he's now down into the 60s. Jonathan, is that right, in terms yeah, of popularity? Right, according to the latest poll. Why is he dropping? Isn't that has to do more with domestic reasons, like raising a minimum wage, which was controversial? There's a refugee crisis going on in the Jeju Island. Uh, I thought it had more to do with domestic reasons rather than North Korea. The public more or less supports this engagement policy with North Korea. No, that's a fair point. And as you know, with these approval ratings, 
first of all, they take them every week. So I, they can be volatile and they can, you know, obviously have a margin of error. Also, we don't really know the reason for all of these shifts. But definitely, I should have mentioned what Sue did just mention, which is, yes, there are domestic politics at play here, as there always are, but, but particularly strongly of late. Yeah. I mean, I think that's right. There's also, you know, it, in Korea, you can, the only, when you're on top, the only place you can go is down. Right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he had you know, very high popularity ratings. And then in the spring, they had these incredibly successful, his party, incredibly successful mayor and gubernatorial elections. Um, so you can only ride the political high for so long in Korea. And, 60, Eventually and you being come in the off. 60s is still pretty good. Be, yeah, I think most political leaders would take being in the Absolutely. 60s. Absolutely. <laughs> just ask Congress and President Trump. Where... That's right. <laughs> But I think, you know, Jonathan's right on this, uh, on these, uh, you know, we have these landmark dates that are coming up. And, you know, I think the North Koreans are very good at pegging things to these dates. And the first of these is this Friday, which is the anniversary of the armistice. And if as Sue is, and I think she's right, if Sue is correct in saying that the North Koreans and the South Koreans are pushing towards some sort of peace or end of war declaration, then it wouldn't surprise me if the North Koreans turned over the first set of POWMI remains, you know, towards the end of this week, somewhere around that date, that would provide a good, uh, convenient um, issue around which to put this issue of an end of war declaration on the table. I don't think they're going to return all of the remains because uh, there are other things the North Koreans want in return for those in, in term return for those remains. But they may see it as in their interest to try to put this forward uh, tactically now to try to get this discussion of a peace declaration or end of the war on the table. Well, so this, this brings us to what what does North Korea want from the United States and what does North Korea want from South Korea? Um, earlier this week, CNN reported that um, continued negotiations between the United States and North Korea hinge on Washington's willingness to make a bold move and agree to a peace treaty with Pyongyang. Um, and that was according to a North Korean official. So what what is exactly do they want from us at this early stage when they haven't done very much to show – they've done a little bit to show good faith, but not very much, as you guys have pointed out? When I listen to and watch carefully how Pompeo describes the talks and, and what we hear otherwise, I mean, it's – there's a lot that's different about what we're seeing now in, in you know under the Trump administration in terms of the Singapore summit and and a what what you could characterize as a series of confidence building measures on both sides right taking down Sohei right providing remains no more testing we suspend exercises these are not part of a denuclearization negotiation but they are arguably part of a confidence building process a CBM process right before a negotiation um, but as much as certain things look different, when we talk about what is being discussed on the nuclear issue, it is incredibly similar to what we saw 10 years ago, what we saw 20 years ago during the Clinton era and during the Bush era, in the sense that, as you described, Andrew, North Korea wants the United States to make a bold move first before they discuss denuclearization. This is what, in the olden days, we called the sequencing problem. Right? Mm -hmm. Is it denuclearization first, as the United States insisted, or is it remove all your sanctions, right? sign a peace treaty, start talking about withdrawing forces from the peninsula, and then maybe we can start talking about denuclearization. Now, of course, both of those are two extremes that neither side would accept. Mm 
Right. And so where we ended up in the past was so-called action for action. You know, now the North Koreans are using the term synchronous, I think. Action for action, you know, you do a little bit on uh, sanctions, we'll do a little bit on denuclearization, that, that, that sort of thing. But, um, and, and so what's disappointing about all that is, despite the fact that we had this high-level intervention, the highest-level intervention between the two leaders, when they actually sit down to do the talks about the real meat of the issue, not the CBMs on the side, but the real meat of the issue, what's coming out of the North Korean mouths sounds you know, very depressingly and unfortunately, surprisingly the same as what they've said in the past. On the establishment of a, a legally binding peace treaty, that's not something that President Trump can even do unilaterally. He needs two-thirds of the Senate. So it's, it's a complex thing to get done. But I think that is the North's ultimate goal, as Victor talked about. I, I think that's always has been North Korea's ultimate goal. And I think this time around, unlike the past, I think North Korea is sensing maybe that this is still possible under the Trump administration. But at least the beginning step is getting peace declaration. So, And this is also the, what South Koreans are supporting. This is why I say I think August uh, 15th, the Libera uh, Liberation Day, President Moon is going to probably give a very stirring speech. And I th I'm afraid that the momentum is on the North Korea side to at least get a peace declaration. Just another date to keep in mind is in early September, I thought Russia was holding the fourth um, uh, Eastern Economic Forum, right, um, where Putin is hosting that. I think Xi Jinping is invited. Maybe he will be there. Abe will be there. Who knows? Maybe Kim, Kim Jong-un will also uh, visit. And I just, I just feel like regionally, uh, it's also supported by South Korea. Uh, at least we're going to get peace declaration. Uh, sometime soon. And if you also throw in there UNGA UNGA in September. Right. right. And we've been talking about is Kim Jong-un going to come to the UNGA, which yeah. would be, of course, unprecedented. Yes, it would be unprecedented. I mean, I think Guterres wants to invite him. I mean, he doesn't need to be invited, but wants to invite him maybe to even not just attend, but actually address the UN General Assembly. Um, that would be one of those high profile, you know, uh, major historic events, again, where the entire world will be watching. And, you know, frankly, I don't think Donald Trump can resist something like that. He'd want to be there too and have his second meeting with the North Korean leader. And, you know, again, for these things to happen, there needs to be some progress. And, you know, I think, you know, the news most likely that is going to come out, you know, this week is on, on the POWMI remains. And then, you know, taking down the Sohei um, uh, satellite launch site, you know, you put these things together and, you know, people who are in favor of pushing the negotiations forward, like President Moon and President Trump, can claim there's there's progress here. We're making progress. Um, so that justifies suspending the exercises that were to take place in August. The U.S. are okay joint exercises that were supposed to take place in August. Those will remain suspended. And then we start rolling into September where you have all these other events that, you know, would be seen at least from – the two administrations, Seoul and Washington's perspective, as another opportunity for a high-level interaction that can help push the process forward even more. You know, trying to socialize the North Korean leader, leader even more using international relations theory. I, I apologize in advance, but <laughs> trying to create audience costs for yeah. the North Korean leader, an isolated person who never had audience costs before, and you know, so they can make a very credible argument internally and to whoever they need 
need to make that argument that we need to do these things to keep this process going and to invest the North Korean leader more in the process. Jonathan, in the course of your reporting, what are you hearing, if anything, about Kim Jong-un coming to the United States to the UN General Assembly in September? Well, to be honest, there hasn't been too much in the way of specific chatter yet. It is still a little bit of ways on the horizon. I think um, you got a lot in between that could happen in terms of whether or not you know the the, the good mood continues here. Um, and I think it has been helped by the fact that Trump has been willing to overlook some of the the, the, the more ominous news, uh, like the fact that the remains haven't been returned, like the fact that Yongbyon is still expanding, like the fact that this missile facility in Hamlin are still expanding. You know, you, 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 as long as you keep this going, um, I think that's fine. I don't know how you might look at that all-caps tweet from Trump towards Iran. You could say, okay, well, maybe he's turning his focus to Iran because things aren't going well with North Korea, but at least he didn't tweet that at Kim Jong-un or something like that. But maybe that's a prelude to more... I don't know, bellicosity or lack of patience with progress on these fronts. So we'll have to see. I mean, one point I wanted to make is just what Victor was uh, saying earlier about, uh, you know, the confidence building measures and, and sequencing and some of these other points. One thing I thought was quite interesting was after Pompeo came out of Pyongyang uh, earlier this month, you had North Korea kind of turn the tables. If you recall, after June 12th uh, in Singapore, when Donald Trump announced that they were going to cancel the exercises, he got a lot of heat from it, from it for, for doing that from the U.S. saying, why did you just do that without any sort of concessions? And then after the Pompeo meeting, you had North Korea say, well, look, um, what we've done is irreversible. So we need a lot of credit for what we've done in Punggye-ri blowing up our underground nuclear test site. And maybe what they will soon say, look, we're taking apart our Sahe uh, rocket launch site as well. Um, these are irreversible actions. Um, what you've done is very reversible. You've done, uh, you know, a, a joint military exercise cancellation that you could resume again. So um, I, I think you really have both sides trying to claim credit and, and get sort of the moral high ground here, because I think they probably want it in the bank for when things maybe turn sour, that they can say, look, we were acting in good faith. You guys weren't. I mean, if we take the narrative that Jonathan just put forward, and you put that in the lap of the South Korean government, this particularly this progressive South Korean government, they would probably not disagree with that. They would probably say, look, decommissioning the nuclear test site, taking down the Sohei satellite launch site, I mean, these are the things that the Americans wanted, right? These are the things that they yeah. wanted, and these are things the North Koreans have never done before, uh, and they're important, significant actions. So the United States needs to, you know, needs to really play ball, needs to be more flexible. From the perspective, and I don't want to sound curmudgeonly, but I know Sue will agree with me, from the perspective of people here in Washington, those are important steps, but thus far, nothing has been verified by an outside authority, right? right? No action has been very all when we the news that we hear of the Sohei satellite launch test site being taken down is largely coming from overhead commercial satellite imagery. Yeah, right. There is no inspector from the IAEA or anywhere else on the ground, either at Pungeri, where they had the nuclear test site, or here at Sohei, that is confirming or verifying anything, right? And so, but the point is that this can, these sorts of things, even though there are steps forward in the diplomacy, can create fissures between the United States and South Korea. And they probably are 
creating fissures, you know, behind closed doors between the two sides because the South Koreans probably have a lot more confidence in this process than everybody else on the U.S. side with the exception possibly being the president. I'm not sure if South Korea has confidence in this process. I think South Korea is uh, has no choice or feels like it has to exude confidence versus actually having confidence. But this Sohei side is reversible. I think that is the IC judgment. Um, also, North Korea has been making progress towards solid fuel rockets, so has less use for the liquid fuel and uh, facilities. So you can make an argument that, yeah, this looks like a concession of Sword, but it's it's still a cosmetic concession. We're not really seeing active st- steps towards denuclearization. How are we ever going to know unless we are able to get more uh, serious verification? Commercial satellites aren't going to do it for us. No, no. I mean, you have to have. I mean, in the past, what we've had is IAEA inspectors on right. the ground, experts, people who have been in North Korea before, who have been in these facilities before. Um, on the ground actually doing this. And my understanding is the IAE has been preparing and pre-positioning to be ready to go in once an agreement is reached. But, you know, the North Koreans appear not to be interested in doing this and instead, you know, are putting on the table these things that are very enticing for the administration. Again, if you think about the this particular satellite launch site, and I mean, Jonathan Sue know this well, I mean, this is like, this is tailor-made for President Trump because it's the, it's the three-stage missile it's the one that blew up the Obama agreement. I mean, this is like tailor-made for the politics of the diplomacy, right? And so, you know, I mean, North Koreans are not stupid. I think they've thought about all this and they've thought about what they're going to put on the table. The other thing is that, you know, clearly the focus has been on things that bother the United States, right? The nuclear weapons, the long-range ballistic missiles, um, and, and clearly not things that bother some of our allies like Japan, which are the deployed short and medium-range missiles, not these prototypes that they have been they have been testing. And so that also could have the impact of sort of dividing the United States from uh, from its alliance network. Yet President Trump tweeted that Japan is very happy and the region is very happy and that he is very happy with the progress that, <laughs> that we're seeing. So when Trump himself, president of the United States, says that he's very happy with the progress, uh, what, what incentive does North Korea truly have to do more than this? Right. And what we ultimately want is IAEA inspectors on the ground. That would be universally recognized as a major step. Yeah, that would be. That would show that this is actually a serious denuclearization process rather than something that just looks like um, it's fake, you know, fake Cosmetic, diplomacy. Yeah. Yeah. But again, I, I think one thing, you know, I, I feel like to answer your question from before, Andrew, how, how do we verify any of this? And one simple answer to go back to Pungiri is we know that they're doing this not because necessarily they want to denuclearize and give up all their nuclear weapons. It's because uh, Kim Jong-un said on April the 20th at a meeting of the party that they're done with their nuclear program. There's no need for the underground tests anymore. So let's get rid of that test site. If you look at Sahel, you can point to exactly what Sue was saying earlier, which is they don't it's not that they don't have any need for liquid fuel missiles anymore, but they're very clearly moving in the direction of solid fuel missiles. It gives them more uh, flexibility. It gives them more of an element of surprise. It's what most of the more advanced missile arsenals in the world are based on anyway. So if they're moving in that direction, to give up a legacy site like Sahe is not that big of a deal. So again, if you pair that with 
an expansion at Yongbyon and an expansion in Hamhung if indeed these steps that North Korea is taking. That's not a good picture. That's not steps towards denuclearization. That's just steps towards modernizing their nuclear weapons force. Yeah, and then the other piece of the the, um, the legacy on Sohei is not only are they moving from liquid to solid fuel propellant, but you know they've also clearly demonstrated a road mobile capabilities. So they don't need static right. launch sites, you know, for, for these sorts of things anymore, which are actually, you know, static launch sites with liquid fuel are rendered very vulnerable to preemptive strikes, right? Because we can see them fueling up the rocket. And then, you know, that that is a sitting duck for some sort of preemptive strike. So, you know, Jonathan and Sue are right on, on all these points. Um, and it reminds me a lot of what the North Koreans did in June 2008, when they allowed the um, the explosion of the iconic cooling tower at the Yongbyon 5-megawatt reactor, the original nuclear reactor facility, this cooling tower that had been pictured on CS- CNN and MSNBC as this sinister thing that was a part of the program. They allowed it to be blown up, and everybody thought, we all thought it was a big step in terms of CVID, you know, D being dismantlement. Yeah. All their capabilities... And lo and behold, a few years later, they start building new nuclear facilities and things directly on that site. So we basically raised the land for them <laughs> yeah. so that they could then build, you know, build new things on this, on this site. And are people in Seoul skeptical of this, Jonathan? Well, obviously, you have folks on the right who have traditionally been skeptical of any kind of attempt to engage with North Korea. They don't think that North Korea is trustworthy or that they're sincere in anything that they really say uh, or commit to. But you've really seen that uh, percentage of the pie shrink, certainly back in April when you had that handshake at Panmunjom. I think you had a lot of folks who were skeptical, but were also willing to, you know, take a risk on a Hail Mary if that's what it was, simply because 2017 was like looking over the edge. And um, I think you're starting to see some of those folks who may have given the benefit of the doubt starting to question whether or not they ought to have done so or ought to continue doing so. And that may explain some of the poll numbers that we're seeing for Moon, although, as we noted, the domestic issues are also at play here. Um, Ultimately, it really is a question of how patient we're willing to be with this process. It has been, what, six weeks since June the 12th. So you can either say that's a very long time or you can say that's a very short time. But uh, certainly as we get into August and as we move towards um, all of the events that we have in September, the anniversary of the founding of the DPRK, the Vladivostok uh, meeting, and then the, the UN General Assembly, I think by that point, if we're still where we are now, you've got to think that a lot of people are going to have given up or, or, or just, you know, presume that North Korea wasn't really sincere all along. Andrew, I know that you're, uh, you've are you got football players in your family. You yeah. know, the Hail Mary analogy that, that, um, <laughs> that Jonathan just used there, yeah, I, you know, yes, there's the Hail Mary pass, and then there's the ground game. Right. And, you know, dealing with North Korea is a ground game. It's one yard at a time. Grind it out. And you grind it out, It's and it's not pretty, right? You know, I... I think the president was, you know, very unconventional and in a sense, you know, willing to take a risk by sort of doing this high-level summit and willing to say that he's he's, he's going to do more of these summit meetings. But, um, you know, we have to remember that those summit meetings are great and they may make big statements, but in the end, somebody's got to grind this out, right? And it, right now it's Secretary Pompeo. Somebody's gr- got to grind it out. And 
it's just the way the North Koreans negotiate. It's never going to be easy, and everything has to be verified. Um, and in the meantime, we shouldn't be handing over, you know, more critical pieces of our alliance assets. You know, we've already already handed over exercises, but we shouldn't be handing over troops or anything else um, until we're until we're really absolutely convinced that we are firmly down the path of uh, some sort of uh, some sort of truly verifiable denuclearization. And we're pretty far from that. Oh, far from it. If you have a question for one of our experts about the impossible state, email us at impossiblestate at csis.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.